Welcome to the Mind on My Money podcast presented by Pinnacle Trust. Hosted by RebelGrove.com publisher Neil McCrady and Pinnacle Trust financial guru Martin Palomo, the Mind on My Money podcast tackles the financial questions we're all thinking about. From paying for college to saving for retirement, from life insurance needs to 401ks and everything in between. The goal is to help you take the stress out of financial concerns and give you some tips to enjoy life while your mind is on your money. Now here are your hosts, Neil McCrady. And Martin Paloma. Welcome to another edition of Mind of My Money presented by Pinnacle. I'm Neil McCrady. Martin Paloma with me here today as well. It is uh, Thursday, March the 31st, so uh, the end of the first quarter is upon us. Listen to me doing financial talk. In my, I know, in, I love it. In my field, it's not a quarter, it's just the end of March. <laughs> it's the it's the end the of the end, the end of the fiscal quarter 2022. It's the end of the second week of spring football in my world. That's <laughs> the extent of it. Um because my world is so stupid compared to real worlds. Um anyway, it's uh I don't know, dude. This financial world gets stupid sometimes too, man. Yeah, yeah pretty much everything's kind of stupid these days. Um which is another topic entirely. Anyway, it's uh it's March 31st, so uh thanks for making us a part of your week as we uh as we record this. The things in the world change pretty rapidly. So uh, in the event that stuff has changed by the time you hear this, we didn't know about it at the time. That's that's, right. that's why we didn't talk about it. Anyway, um, I'm Neil. That's Martin. Um, I'll tell you real quick. I'm coming to you from the Clark Ford Studios. Clark Ford's in Amory, Mississippi, 662-257-1900. That's the number. Call it. Ask for Corey Clark and tell Corey what Ford product you're looking for, and he'll handle the rest. And you'll be glad you did. Um, you're going to get a great quote that you can use moving forward, or you can take it and hop into a Clark Ford, and you'll be thrilled that you did. Again, 662-257-1900. And Martin, before we get rolling, I know it's a busy day uh, there at Pinnacle, but tell the people at Pinnacle how they can get in touch with you guys. Yeah. <clears throat> um, man, it is It is a busy day. It's a, it's a big day for us, man. I know we've, we've been talking about it a lot, um, you know, kind of leading up to this, but today is uh, – Today is closing day for us, so we are really excited to kind of officially slash legally, you know, take the baton pass from uh, from the first generation that started Pinnacle almost, you know, it's a little more than 25 years ago. I mean, almost to the day, it's it's almost 25 years, and uh, and we are we are closing today. We are we are buying the business from. Uh, from our generation one owners that, you know, had the idea to start this thing and start an independent wealth management firm in 97, really when no one was doing it. And, um, and, you know, they built a really, really good business. Uh, Stacy wall was the founder CEO along with, um, his CFO, Beth McGall and, and Jana Parrish and a couple of other folks. And, uh, I mean, it's kind of a, it's, it's kind of cool. It's a day of celebration around here. Um, you know, and I know for Stacy and for, for Jana and for Beth, probably also a, uh, a little bit of bittersweet, meaning that their, uh, their race is, is finished. Um, for the most part, I mean, Stacy will, will still be, uh, will still be helping us next, the next three years, you know, as we, as we fully transition, Beth's going to be around, you know, helping wind down the pinnacle trust side. But, um, but man, it is kind of, it's kind of a cool it's kind of a cool experience, very humbling, um, you know, and then all of our most, I say all of our clients, there's been a, a few folks that, you know, did decide to, um, to move, move to a different relationship, which, 
you know, I don't take that personally at all, but, uh, man, most of our clients, I'd say almost hundred percent of them have, have the confidence with us to, to stick with us, man. And, and that's, a that's a really big compliment because, you know, usually when there's a lot of change, people don't like change. And, um, even though I've been around Pinnacle for, you know, almost nine years, it's still a change of ownership. Um, and, and, you know, and I'm grateful for our clients to, to, uh, to stick with us and stay with us. And man, we look forward to growing and, and continuing, I guess, round two of the track. And, uh, and I know there'll be a baton passing, you know, maybe in 25 years for us, but today we're really excited to be uh, legally and officially taking the baton from Stacy and, and Beth and Jana and all the other, you know, pinnacle investors that uh, believed in us 25 years ago. So, man, I know that that was kind of a, like a, a long, what's going on here at Pinnacle thing. But, you know, what we've done for 25 years is, is be, um, you know, helping people navigate the, all of the obstacles of personal finance and, and putting all the scattered puzzle pieces together. And, you know, folks, some folks do it themselves and, you know, and some folks say, Hey, I need some help. And if you're one of those people that say, I don't really know what I'm doing, or I don't know where I'm going, um, give us a call 601-957-0323 or email us at info at my wealth.com. We'll see if it, uh, if it makes sense and if there's opportunities to work together. All right. There's a few things to get to. Um, we talked about the quarter, so I'll start here. Stocks set to wrap up volatile quarter on a mixed note. Uh, this is, I'm reading from, uh, Anna Hertenstein. What's up, Anna? In, uh, the wall street journal, just real quick stock and oil prices dropped Thursday as president Biden prepares a substantial release of oil reserves to staunch soaring energy prices and inflation. The S&P 500 edged 0.1% lower after closing down 0.6% Wednesday. The NASDAQ composite index fell uh, one-tenth of a percent. And the Dow Jones industrial average retreated three-tenths of a percent. President Biden is expected to tap up to 180 million barrels of government oil reserves from the next uh, over the next six months to address the rise in energy prices in the aftermath of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Excuse me, the uh, White House announced on, on Thursday that would be the largest release from strategic stocks in history, according to RBC Capital Markets. Global benchmark Brent Crude retreated 3.4% to $107.65 a barrel. Stocks are set to wrap up a volatile first quarter on a mixed note. The S&P 500 staged a rebound in recent days, rising 5% this month, but the broad index is still down 3.6% for the quarter so far. Yep. And then in recent days, investors have managed to stay calm in the face of the ongoing Russia-Ukraine crisis, also overlooking fresh COVID-19 lockdowns in China. Instead, they are focusing on declining oil prices in hopes that inflation could ease. There's a lot there, as there always is, but there's uh, yeah. Biden in the news today with the uh, yeah. the. Str- I mean, dude, we could talk the whole show about that one article that you just read. Yeah, there's a, there's a ton there. Um, so end of quarter, it's yeah. been a rough quarter for people who watch markets. It's a rough quarter for people when they get those monthly 401k statements, like I have, where my yep. God, at the bleeding, and it just it it's uh, you 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 have to. We talked about this before and. You have to catch yourself because I, I, I've caught myself going, my God, I'd just be better off putting my money in a savings account, which I know is 
long-term illogical. That's that's right. Um, but boy, it is hard. It is hard to watch yourself lose twenty five thousand dollars a month. Well, dude, and you know, and another thing too, it's funny how different of reactions people could have. Like, even let's say that you're the the people that open their statement every time they get it right, and if you got monthly statements in January, you opened your statement and you were down. You know, let's just pretend for for easy talk that you're all stock. You know, in the portfolio, you're the S and P five hundred. Um, you know, you opened your statement and say you had a million dollars. Um, you know, you were you were down almost a hundred grand in in January, and then in February, you know, you open your statement again and you're like, oh my gosh, I'm down. You know, another thirty thousand dollars. I'm down a hundred and thirty thousand dollars. Um, you know, so far, and then let's just assume that the quarter ends the way it ended yesterday. Let's just say we have a flat day today, relatively flat day. Nothing crazy happens. And, uh, you know, and you open your statement and you're like, okay, I've, you know, I've won back a hundred of, of my one thirty that I lost. And I'm, I'm only down by, you know, $30,000, um, since the, you know, since the beginning, beginning of the year versus someone who only gets a quarterly statement and they open their statement and they go, uh, you know, I'm, there was a, this was a crazy, a crazy quarter and I'm only down $30,000. Well, the difference is, is that they just didn't see all of the roller coaster, right? Cause if they're only getting a quarterly statement versus a monthly statement, they didn't see the carnage that happened in January and then a little more carnage in February. And then a total melt up, you know, in March, all they saw is, you know, Hey, everybody said the markets are down significantly this quarter. I'm only down, you know, and people see their losses in dollars and their gains in percentages. Well, I'm only down $30,000. Well, you're down, you're down 3% for, for the quarter. Um, so depending on how frequently you get your stuff. And if you look at it, you like your heart rate and blood pressure could be totally different places. If you get quarterly, you know, versus monthly statements, which is kind of, which is kind of crazy. Um, but yeah, man, it has been, it's been a really, a really wild ride. You know, January was the toughest for sure. I mean, in February was tough for stocks, but one of the things that we're not, that no one's talking about, and I think it's really because people don't understand it as much as, is bond portfolios. So the, the S and P 500 equivalent for bonds is the Barclays aggregate index. And since January of last year, it's down 11%, 11%, which is, which is wild, man, because with, with, you know, with bonds, you know, stocks can go down 10% and recover in a quarter, just like we've seen in the first quarter. But, but bonds don't do that, man. They don't work like that. If they're down 11%, it's going to take a long time to recover that. And we're in a rising rate environment. So I know listeners before probably know this, but I'll say it again in case we have new listeners. But you remember when you're a little kid, the seesaw or the teeter-totter, depending on what part of the country you're from. Sure. You know, one kid goes up, one kid goes down. So the, the, the direction of interest rates and the direction of the price of bonds have the same relationship. So as interest rates go up, which the Federal Reserve has said, 
which there's no way in hell they're going to be able to pull this off. You know, they're saying the fit that we're going to, you know, maybe raise rates six times this year. That's uh, they're not going to get there. I don't, I mean, look, I may be wrong and they may get there. I would say it's a cold, a, 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 a literal hell will freeze over before they get to six rate hikes this year, but they are going to get in at least four. And as rates go up, bond prices go down. So if since January of last year, if the bond index is down 11% and rates are going up, it ain't pretty for bonds, right? I mean, you know, you're going to have losses sure. in bonds. So what do you do? And, and and can I play, can I pick on you as the village idiot? Yeah, sure. As you say? Sure, absolutely. How do you manage your bond? Like in your 401k, how do you manage your bond portfolio? I lean on uh, my Martin Palomo to help me with it. I do what he recommends. Okay. That's a, that's a better answer than, <laughs> than I thought you were going to give me. I figured you'd, you'd say, well, there's a bond option in there and I just pick it. Because that's what most people do in their 401k. They have no idea what. And the bonds are the more complicated piece. But people don't understand. The average person understands bonds less than they understand stocks. And I mean, like in our portfolios for our clients. See, I don't understand them well enough. And so I lean on people who do. And I just, yeah. tr I trust well, that. And that's good, man. I, I mean, trust that they're, to do, Neil. I, I lean on their expertise. That's what I'm paying for. Yeah. I mean, that's what you're supposed to do. But most people in their 401k, most people don't have an advisor that will help them with their 401k either. Because a lot of advisors say, uh, I don't get paid on that. And, you know, some of them will help, but a lot of them are like, ah, I don't get paid to help you with your 401k. I only get paid to manage your, you know, retirement assets that you have with me or your, you know, other savings that you have with me. But, you know, one of the things that, that we've done really been active in, in our client portfolios is managing the bond side of the port. And dude, we've beat the bond index significantly in the last year at Pinnacle. And I want to spike the football in the end zone, dude, because it's like, it's like we're winning 49 to seven against the bond index, but no one wants to talk about bonds. No one cares about bonds. Well, they want to talk about stocks. Yeah. So you need to have an advisor that manages your entire portfolio, not just, not just the stock portion of the portfolio. What have you done that's allowed you to get ahead of bonds? Because I'm reading this this story right here. Bond market suffers worst quarter in decades. Yeah. Uh, U.S. bonds worst quarter in more than 40 years is coming to a close. The question for many investors now is whether it is time to buy the biggest, the biggest dip in recent history. The Bloomberg U.S. aggregate bond index, largely U.S. treasuries, highly rated corporate bonds and mortgage-backed securities, Returned minus 6% in 2022 through Wednesday on track for the biggest quarterly loss since 1980. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and dude, and the answer was I, when people are bringing us new cash and we have like, I have a client yesterday that brought us a check, a pretty large one. And she said, Hey, we, you know, let's, let's get this invested. And she is a pretty heavy, um, like a relatively conservative investor. So more bonds in the portfolio than stocks. And I won't buy bonds for her right now. So what I've done, and I was out of town last week because I was doing a, I was on a due diligence trip for, um, for some new investment options that we're looking at. And for our clients, I have to find alternative 
alternatives to bonds to put new cash to work because you're not going to get income from the bonds like you used to. And like, if I go buy my client, um, you know, a 10 year treasury right now and it's paying, you know, roughly 2.3% today and, and rates go up, let's say the treasury goes up, that 10 year treasury goes up, um, to three and a half percent. So just a 1% increase over where it is now, I'm going to have a 8% decline in the price of that bond. So my options, Neil, at that point become, you know, I hang on to my bond that's paying me 2.3% versus 3.5, or I sell it at an 8% loss. Well, you're not going to sell it, right? You don't want to lock in the loss. So you have to, you have to make a decision that that becomes an an illiquid piece of your portfolio if you're buying the individual treasury, individual treasury bond, which most investors don't do, um, but it's the easiest to talk about. And uh, so, man, I just say that that's that's a pretty bad investment decision, right? I'm going to lock in a lower rate for 10 years and I'm not, and I'm going to be, I'm now I'm committed to this thing because I'm not going to sell it at an 8% loss. So I'm committed to it. And most people, you know, would, would probably fire me if I said, Hey, I'm going to guarantee you a loss and you're not going to be able to, you're not going to have access to this money for 10 years. I mean, you'd probably fire me if I was your advisor, right? Yeah, of course. Yeah. You'd Makes like, no sense. What, what, what the ir- hell did you just do? That's irrational. Right. So we have to find alternative ways to make income during a time like this. And really it's going to sound silly to say this, but it's usually stocks that are the most logical place to put money, you know, like, like good quality dividend paying stocks, or, you know, one of the things we've been looking at, does that include commodities? Is that what you mean? Or is that a different thing? No, that's a total, that commodities is like oil, um, you know, precious metals because commodities are commodities poised for the best quarter in 32 years. Yeah. Yeah. Well, dude, look what oil has done, you know, energy prices have done. And then, you know, let's, the conflict in Ukraine has, has increased the, you know, the cost and, and the price of a lot of commodities. Here's, you know, th- here's, three, par- here's three paragraphs for you. Commodities are on track for their best quarter in more than 30 years after Russia's invasion of Ukraine supercharged a rally in markets from oil to wheat and nickel. Bam. The war has disrupted traffic on goods coming out of the Black Sea, curtailing supply, and sparking sharp price swings across financial markets. Nervous investors are weighing the fallout from the conflict along with higher interest rates from the Federal Reserve, which could threaten the economy's post-pandemic recovery. At the same time, a sharp run-up in commodities prices has some investors and economists worried about inflation jumping even higher from here. The S&P GSCI, a benchmark tracking the prices of commodities futures from precious metals to livestock, has climbed 34% in the first quarter on pace for its biggest gain since 1990. Yep. Yeah. And so, like, if you have, if your portfolio is well diversified, you're going to have a, you're probably going to have a little bit of exposure to commodities anyway. But, you know, people are not going to have huge you know, pieces of the portfolio, you know, 10, 20, 30% of the portfolio carved out to the commodity space because it's also very volatile. 
you know, in and of itself. I mean, if you look at, at gold prices or silver prices or, you know, even oil for, for that matter, you know, they, they are, they're really volatile. Um, but you know, most, most of the times your advisor does have a little bit of exposure to the commodity space in a well diversified portfolio, you know, and for us, and, and we have a little bit of commodities in our alternative strategies and our hedged strategy spaces. But where I'm looking for is, you know, like how do I get income from my clients, right? When they used to get income from their bonds. And then if you have really clients that are, you know, that were, that were savers during the, during the seventies and eighties, you know, they had CDs that would pay them 10, 12%. And those days are, don't even exist. That's like a, that's a unicorn, right? So, but, but people do need income in retirement. And how do you get that income? It used to be able to get it from bonds. Bonds used to be able to, you know, help reduce the volatility in your portfolio. And you just read it that this quarter bonds are on track for the, you know, corporate bonds and treasuries are on track for their worst quarter since the eighties. So stocks are going down, bonds are going down. Where do you hide? You don't go to cash because if inflation's at 7%, your real return on cash is negative 7%. So where do you go? Stocks? I mean, you have to, you have to quality, quality stocks, or, you know, in the, in our case, we're looking at for non-correlated returns you know, I've looked at, I'm looking at real assets and like real estate with, that's not a traded, uh, REIT, which is a real estate investment trust uh-huh. because those moves, those move volatile, just like stocks. I rather have the income without the price volatility and kind of be a bond proxy. Does and those the, are the kind of things we're looking at. So the interest rates are going up. Does that change things? The average rate for a 30 year fixed rate loan jumped to 4.67%. Uh, mortgage finance giant Freddie Mac said Thursday marking the weekly figures highest reading since December 2018. The 30-year fixed rate rose from 4.42% a week ago, continuing a steady rise that has pushed home loan rates within sight of 5% for the first time in four years. Yep. This year's surge in mortgage rates was hardly unforeseen given the record lows reached in the pandemic period and concerns right, about high U.S. inflation readings. But it has unfolded faster than expected. At the beginning of the year, the average rate on America's most popular Home loan was 3.22%. Yet here's what's interesting. Higher mortgage rates typically slow home buying activity. Let me give some credit here. This is the Wall Street Journal, and I'm reading the work of um, Orla McCaffrey. We've read Orla's work before. She's a very good writer. What's up, Orla? Mr. and Mrs. McCaffrey, your daughter's a great writer. Um, Higher mortgage rates typically slow home buying activity, but the number of applications Submitted by hopeful homeowners, home buyers, I should say, has risen for three of the past four weeks, according to the Mortgage Mortgage Bankers Association, showing the U.S. home boom is far from over. It's going to be a, it's going to take a pretty healthy increase in rates to moderate the demand, said Phil Shoemaker, president of Originations at Home Point Financial Corp., a Michigan-based mortgage lender. Expectations that the Federal Reserve will raise interest rates several more times this year to control inflation are driving up mortgage rates before the central bank raised rates for the first time since 2018. The Fed's decision to unwind its purchases of mortgage-backed securities had started forcing rates upward. There's a lot there that 
people yep. like me get a little lost in it. But bottom line well, is this. We more, can break that all down pretty quickly. Mortgage rates are going up. Yep. But demand's not going down. That's correct. Which means why? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. So let's, I mean, we'll talk about, I'm going to, I'm going to parcel this out into two pieces. First, let's talk about mortgage rates and, and historically where we are too. Cause even at, so that um, yeah, the, the traditional 30 year mortgage, uh, you know, a, a few months ago or a month ago was 3.2%. And now it's, you know, let's say it's even at, at, 4.2%, let's say a hundred percent jump. I can't remember if you said what it had settled at. Um, uh, four point, let me get back into that paragraph. Um, it's at 4.67. Okay. As so, of, so as of even today. More, so it jumped up 150 basis points. So 4.67. So in April of 2017, when we moved into our new house, my rate was, was four and three quarters in 2017. And now in rates went down even further, but that was just five years ago that it was, you know, mine was four and three quarters. And so we, we have, we are historically still in the trough of, of what interest rates are. So we are, it's still less expensive at 4.67% to buy a house than it was, you know, 10 years ago, or even, you know, in 2007, right before the markets melted down, I bought my second home in the summer of 2007. And I think my interest rate was six, six and three quarters or something like that. And, you know, I didn't have, you know, an 800 credit score, but I had, I had good credit and that was a reasonable rate, you know, at that time. So historically rates are still low, but let's look at rates versus renting. And I'm, and then that'll also play into the why we're talking about real assets as well. So you remember, gosh, it's been, it's been several shows, probably it was probably last year when we were talking about what actually makes up the inflation number, right? So when the fed comes out and says, Hey, you know, inflation came in hot at, you know, 6%, what, what makes all of that up? And it used to be it was car prices, like used car prices and rents because rents were up significantly across the nation. Um, and then it was things like food and energy and things like, but the biggest, the biggest p components of the high inflation number were rents and used car prices. Well, rents are still up. And, you know, so when people are looking at, and my brother is doing it right now, the cost of buying versus the cost of renting, it still makes sense to buy, even with, you know, an elevated interest rate, um, you know, over what it was a month ago. And my brother is trying to lock down, you know, lock down a house, but he can't like it's, he's still being priced out by, by cash buyers. And those are some of the larger institutions that are, that are snatching up houses at, with cash with the intent to turn around and, and lease them out. And you still have more demand for homes than there is supply. So people are being forced into renting, you know, anyway. So that's why I think that there's still, it makes sense that you can have rising interest rates, but still a high demand or a high appetite for wanting to purchase a new home versus rent and pay, you know, uh, the, the inflation and rent prices.
Oh, for sure. So, and I guess let me, I'll circle back to, you know, we were talking about alternatives for income and why we're looking at real assets. So the, the, the firm that we're looking at, um, most of their portfolio is industrial, like warehouses. And so they have like Amazon properties. They have, uh, you know, like Walmart distribution centers where they own the building and they lease the space to, you know, to those companies. Uh, and then they'll have apartments, you know, and, and high, like high quality apartments in, you know, in high demand areas. So, you know, as interest rates go up, you know, that helps them with having cash flow from rents too. Um, so that inflation actually helps uh, real estate, non-correlated real estate, if you're an investor um, versus a, a tenant. All right, here's one. This is, the, I, I want to get your, your thoughts on a bunch of things. Got about 10, 15 minutes left before we got to roll. Cool. Uh, this is, again, uh, Wall Street Journal. Um, Ann Turgeson and Richard Rubin wrote this story. Um, Americans could stash more in their 401k case and sit on their nest eggs longer under a house bill that aims to boost individual retirement savings. The bill passed Tuesday by a vote of 414 to 5, so it's very bipartisan, uh, raises contribution limits for older workers and lets companies offer employees a small cash bonus for signing up for the retirement plan. The bipartisan measure, which some are referring to as Secure Act 2.0, would build on retirement policy changes enacted in 2019 that, among other things, raised the age people were required to start withdrawing money from retirement accounts uh, to 72 from 70 and a half. Yep. They're expecting people to work to age 72 now. Um, if well, pa- I have a theory on that too. Okay. If passed by the Senate and signed into law, the bill would raise the age again over the next decade to 75. Yep. A change that would also boost the bottom line of the financial services industry, which typically earns fees based on the size of retirement accounts. Senators are likely to consider changes to the House bill, and they could then add it to a larger piece of legislation later this year because that's what Congress does that drives me insane. <laughs> drives Just me sneaks nuts. it in. Well, they put stuff in where nobody knows exactly what Congress did, and then we get to the campaign season, and each side can tell these half-truths about the other, and it just, no one knows, you, it's very difficult to educate yourself completely on, okay, well, now who did what? What exactly have you done? It's very, I like it when it's just one piece of legislation and not these, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm digressing, I apologize, lots of legislation that has value mixed in with pork that is you know to appease lobbyists and such yep um for aging people with healthy bodies and healthy bank accounts the plan would provide significant advantages in the short term quote it feels like a tax cut said mark Erie, a senior fellow at the brookings institution who oversaw national retirement policy while at the u.s treasury department during the Clinton and Obama administrations. According to Boston College's Center for Retirement Research, roughly half of American households are at risk of seeing their standards of living decline after retirement because of a shortfall in savings. Representative Kevin Brady, a Republican of Texas, a co-sponsor of the bill with Representative Richard Neal, a uh, 
Democrat from Massachusetts and the chairman of the House Ways and Means Committee said it has several aims. Um, among them, with Americans working longer, we want them to keep saving longer. Tell me, you said you had some theories on this. I'm curious. Yep. Well, so, you know, it used to be, so the, the, the IRS and the government has never, never done you favors, although they want to smoke and mirror, make it look like they've done you a favor. And even the 401k is a great example of this. And this leads into the, the secure act and the secure 2.0. So let's just use a hypothetical person. Let's say that, you know, during your working years, um, you know, you contributed, let's just say $200,000 to your 401k, right? And your company gave you a match to that. And so let's say your company put in, you know, 150, I mean, yeah, $150,000 of, you know, you put in 200, they put in 150,000. So you've contributed $350,000. Well, that all came pre-tax, right? You got a tax benefit for that. You didn't have to pay taxes on that money. And during your lifetime, you know, you invested it well. And by the time you hit, you know, age 65 uh, and you're ready to retire, let's say that your 401k balance is a million dollars just for easy math, right? So you got a million bucks in there at 65 and you've only contributed 200,000 and your uh, company contributed 150. So you didn't pay taxes on 200,000 bucks. We'll leave the company out of this for just sake of argument. But, you know, at age 70, it used to be age 70 and a half. You have to start, the IRS says you now have to start taking the money out, whether you need it or whether you don't need it. And we're going to tax you on this money. So let's just easy math again. <clears throat> let's say it's a million bucks, right? Okay. And they say your required distribution out of this million dollars is, um, is going to be 50,000 bucks just for easy, easy math. Well, so now you're required to take that $50,000 out and they're going to tax you on that entire amount, that entire 50,000 bucks. Well, really, they've got a tax base of you on you now at a million dollars versus, you know, the 200 that you put in. So you got a tax benefit on 200. The IRS was patient and they forewent, you know, collecting the taxes on that $200,000. So now they get to collect it on the million dollars. So the market helped them grow, you know, at a, a tax, a taxable base that they're going to be able to levy it on. And there's no way out of it. You cannot. You cannot escape it unless you, you know, give all of it away to charity or something like that. So not only that, but you're drawing Social Security and Social Security is federally income tax free to you if you make below $40,000, right? Well, if you make above 40000 bucks, and it's, you know, there is an exact number, 40000 is an approximation. Now, 80% of your IRS benefit, I mean, your uh, social security benefit becomes taxable, um, you know, when you file your taxes. So they're taxing you on the million dollars worth of base and they're taxing you on social security as well. So they're getting, they are going to kind of double dipping and you used to be able to, you know, if you die, you pass that on to your children or to your grandchildren they could stretch out 
that minimum required distribution over their lifetime. Well, what the SECURE Act did is the SECURE Act came and closed that loophole up and they said, well, we're not going to require you to take it out at 70 and a half now. We're going to let you wait till 72. But if you die and it goes to your children, they have a 10-year window. They have to take it out in that 10 years. So let's again say you have a million dollars. You and your wife die, you know, in an automobile accident. It's tragic. And your kids inherit, you know, let's say you have one kid. Your one kid inherits your, your IRA and inherited IRA. So they have a million bucks they have to take out over 10 years. So now let's just say they make $50,000. Well, now they're going to make a hundred on paper. They're going to make $150,000 for 10 years. So their, their tax bracket just went up as well. And the IRS is going to collect more taxes on the kids and they make them take it out over a shorter period of time. Secure act 2.0 says, well, Hey, this works so good. We'll let, we'll, let you grow this thing for another five years. So if they let you grow it to 75, still going to make your kids take it out in 10 years. So they're going to get their money in a shorter period of time than they used to get it. So they didn't do you any favors. I just question how many people are truly going to be able to work to age 75. Well, I don't think it has anything to do with work. Okay. I think it has everything to do with, you know, the IRS fooling people into, or the government fooling people into that we're giving you this benefit because they're not right. Cause it's not a benefit. It's better for, it's better for them. What the IRS is doing or what the government is doing is better for them to collect taxes. It's not a benefit to the, it's, it's more beneficial to leave it the old way. And if you Neil said, Hey, my kids are good. And Laura and I got, you know, a million bucks in our retirement accounts, we're not going to leave this to our kids. We're going to leave it to our grandkids right? and let them stretch it out, you know, over 80 years instead of my kids, you know, 40 years. Okay. That's the, that's the strategy. And it was a great strategy that we used to use in planning with our clients. But now the government has, if you did, if you give it to your kids or your grandkids, it doesn't matter. They got to take it out in 10 years. Do you think, and I'm asking, this is a loaded question, or it might be one for you to think about, and we'll get to it next week as we come up, up to the end here. Um, I have someone in my family who I listen to a lot who is far more moderate than I am, might even lean left a little bit. He says that all of this, all of this, is an attempt by the government and a not-so-subtle attempt at what is essentially wealth redistribution, that that's the end game. The end game is to redistribute wealth. Doesn't necessarily think it will be successful because he doesn't think that wealth works that way. That That's underestimating the ability of some to just know how to make money and the inability of some to do the same. But do you think in the end this is there's a more sinister goal at, at hand? Is there a conspiracy here, here or is this just policy? Man, I think... I think probably what happened is, you know, look at our, look at our balance sheet, our, you know, our, our national debt and our, you know, and our national balance sheet and both of which have expanded tremendously, you know, especially in the last, you know, couple of years. And we already run 
a budget deficit, you know, every year anyway. It's like we'll plan, we'll have a budget and we're still going to have a $3 trillion shortfall, which means we've got to issue more bonds. You know, anyway, I think that what's probably happened is that, you know, uh, our our senators and our representatives have said, holy crap, like now this monster is so big for, you know, our national debt, you know, and our and our balance sheet of of our country that we can't we can't do it the way we've been doing it and try to even get this thing balanced or right side up. So I think that a lot of that policy has come into place as a reaction and a means of not necessarily redistributing per se, but, and I know there's a lot of, you know, bills and, and allocation of funds in the budget that is, you know, distribution of taxes collected from corporations and wealthy individuals that go to, you know, social programs and things like that. But I think this is them having that, you know, kind of the oh shit moment of, you know, where, you know, I don't know if you ever had this when you were, you know, a young adult. I know I had it when I was a young adult, especially when I got a credit card and I didn't know how to use it properly. Yeah. And all of a sudden I've run up this huge tab and I'm like, holy shit, I have to pay for this now. And it's not something I'm going to be able to pay for in a month. I'm going to have to, you know, really strap down and, and, you know, and pay this thing off over, over years. I think, I think that's where our government is right now is they're like, okay, we, we can't, we can't, you know, financial engineer our way out of this. So we've got to find a way to collect more taxes. And I really think that's what the secure act is, is about it at the, you know, at the most fundamental basis is that it's about how can we collect more taxes in a shorter period of time and guarantee we're going to get it. Interesting. I could be wrong. No, you're probably right. I, the last two years have made me more of a conspiracist than I was before March of 2020. <laughs> but but well, but I mean, not. Dude, I'm still I'm still I'm still not as much of a conspiracy theorist as a lot of people have become. I like I've heard all these people in the conspiracy theories with Will Smith and 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 all that stuff that happened at the at the Oscars. Oh, or whatnot. I haven't heard any of that. Yeah, well, you'll have to enter. Can, do you have time to entertain me on that one, or do you got to roll? I got to roll. We'll we'll do it. Okay. We'll do it another time. I mean, it's it's the whole that it was a setup that he took the stage and slapped Chris Rock, and everybody knew it was coming, and that it was part of some deal with Pfizer or something. And I I, I just I don't I don't <laughs> I have a hard time with that honestly. I, you know, I, I, I've got to hear this the whole deal. I may just, I may Google. Yeah. It's probably on mother Google and it? it's everywhere. Yeah. And, yeah. And, I mean, I'll, I have, I'll have a, to Google it and read about I struggle it. with that, but at the same time, I mean, you know, I go back and I catch myself doing it. And it's sp- plausible, right? Yeah. There's something about the spring that makes me remember the spring of 2020 so vividly. Oh, and I think about all the stuff that they got wrong oh. and that now I look back and think, and they knew they were wrong. They knew they were wrong when they were doing it. And they did it. And, and, and before those, hey, and listen, I've said this to some people, and it pisses off a lot of my more conservative friends. Trump was the president. Yeah, he's, he's, his hands are not clean of this. Either. Not even a little bit. Trump could have yeah. fired Fauci. Trump could have fired Fauci. Trump oh, could have I mean, said, I was talking about money supply stuff. But, you know, I'm talking about all of it. Yeah. All of it. Because all of it led to the same thing. Trump signed off on, on those handouts and and uh, all yep. of the fraud that came about because of, of the easy ability to get loans and stuff that 
was all part of an election cycle that turned into an there, there's so much blame to be passed out to both sides that it's just stunning but i catch myself looking at it sometimes and thinking man we were here just two years ago there's something about walking in my neighborhood and there's this one family i won't name them because they're really nice people but they're great and they still they were this way before the pandemic and they're, the, they're this way after the pandemic they're a really close-knit family and they hang out outside a lot together and it's really cool. Congrats to them. I mean, I, I'm not I'm not insulting them at all. But I would see them during the pandemic, and I'm like, those are the nicest, happiest people. And so now I see them, and it still reminds me of, you remember those times we take these walks? And 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 uh, I don't know. I, I look back on it, and, and I think of all the – and what goes through my mind, Martin, is that you knew, and you did it anyway. You knew, and you did it anyway. And And I'm resentful of that. But um, anyway, I got dude. I mean, I remember when we talked about in the fall of 2020 is like, how are we going to pay for all this? And we and we had that conversation on air um, a good bit. And, you know, and it's funny because now we're starting to see some of the, you know, political engineering and the financial engineering of of how do we pay for all of this? uh, That's and that's the Cure Act is probably one of the few the beginning of the answers of how do we pay for all of this? Well, I fear it's not us who pay for it. I fear it's our children and grandchildren who pay for it in their standard of living. And I get back into the whole it was intentional to to redistribute wealth and to bring the top down as opposed to bringing the bottom up. I I get into that, which is you know what that might be a we could do that one of these one of these April Thursdays. We could do a trip down memory lane and knowing what we know today, what we thought about then. Might actually be interesting. It would piss off a handful of people who get so mad. Yep. I mean, there are people that to this day get angry about the whole. They get angry at people like me who push back on mask. They get angry at people like me who to, even today refuse to forgive those who close schools. And I will never forgive them. There is no forgiveness. It will never come. I will never forgive those who forced mask on school kids. And I will never, for, I will never forgive those who close schools. Schools should never have been closed. Colleges should never have been Zoom only, virtual only. That was a fraud. It was an intentional act. It was a it was it was an act of it was, it was malicious. I started to say something stronger. I'll, I'll think about it, but it was malicious. I'll never forgive those people. Yeah, no, uh, and, I mean, and, and I, and I, and I, I struggle. Totally agree with you. I struggle with this that nobody will say. You said it was too dangerous to reopen the schools. We did, and every, everything was fine. You said we couldn't send kids to schools without masks. We did, and they were fine. Never walk that back. Never walk that back. It really bothers me. It's a show I'd actually like to do. I would piss off some people, but I don't really care. I lost friends in, in, in spring of 2020, and Martin, as I get to two years out, I don't care. I don't miss those friendships. Is that cold? Is that mean? It's the truth. I don't no. miss. I don't miss those friendships. I, I look back no. and go, "That's time that I no longer waste." Not anger. No, I mean, There's I, no I anger. Mean, There's I mean, no malice. I don't wish. In, I don't wish ill on them. I hope they're doing well. But I don't miss those friendships. Not even a little yeah, bit. Yeah, my my mom's old country sayings of, you know, better to have four quarters than a hundred pennies. Yeah. So yeah, you know, there's no doubt about friends. It. No doubt Good about friends, it. quality friends, valuable friends, 
Less yep. of them is okay. Yep, no, no question about it. Speaking of, uh, my friend, I know you have a busy day, so get moving. Uh, Appreciate good, you. Good luck with everything today. And, Man, um, I'm, I'm excited. Yeah, you should be. I'm, I'm happy for you. Um, all right, so that's uh, Martin Palomo. It's MyPinWealth.com. To learn more uh, from those guys, get in touch with them, MyPinWealth.com, M-Y-P-I-N-N, Wealth.com. For Martin, I'm Neil. Thanks for making us a part of your week. We'll be back next week with another edition of Mind on My Money. Until then, take care.